I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we are talking about the case of Daniel Marsh. I first came across this case when I saw some of the interrogation footage from Daniel Marsh's interview with police and when I saw this footage, my jaw literally hit the floor. Daniel Marsh was a teenager who could not stop fantasizing about murder. It was all he could think about. When he would pass someone on the street, he would think about how to kill them. When he was in the schoolyard with other students, he would think about how to kill them. And even in his police interview, Daniel sat there and openly described in graphic detail how he would go about murdering the detective that was interviewing him. I just could not believe what I was seeing. And what is even more disturbing is that these thoughts have been going on for years. Daniel had started having graphic desires of killing people since the age of only 10 years old. And unfortunately, as Daniel went through his teenage years, these thoughts only got worse and worse until they ultimately led to the tragic events of today's case. And we've got all of that to get through today. So let's dive in. Daniel was born on the 14th of May, 1997, making him a Taurus. He grew up in Davis, California, where he lived with his dad, Bill, mom, Sherry, and older sister, Sarah. And there are quite a few quite big significant events that happen in Daniel's childhood. Not always to Daniel, but they're still significant. So the first one is when Daniel was just two years old, his mom, Sherry, suffered a head injury. Now this was a very serious head injury. She actually suffered concussion, which left her with amnesia. And this was very extreme amnesia as well, because she could not remember that once she was married, or two, that she had children. So she had literally no idea that she was a mother of two. Now, Daniel's dad, Bill, said that Sherry went to live with her parents to recover, and Bill was left to look after the two children. And this lasted for four years, that Sherry didn't really know that she was a mother of two, which honestly is just so crazy. Like, whole amnesia, like, I just can't ever wrap my head around it. And I'm not a medical expert, so I'm not going to start saying how it works and everything. But for four years, she didn't have a clue that she was married or she had two children. And this must have had a huge impact on Daniel and Sarah. Their mom has basically forgotten them. I know it's not her fault, but she's forgotten them. And to a child, a child is not going to really understand that it's not their mom's fault, if you know what I mean. And when this whole thing started, Daniel was only two years old and it lasted until he was six. And then after the four years, don't quite know what happened. Like I said, I'm not a medical expert. I don't really know how amnesia works. But after four years, she clearly recovered. I don't know. And she moved back in with the family to carry on living a normal family life. Now, a big caveat here is that Sherry actually denies that this ever happened. Sherry denies ever having amnesia. She said that she did have a head injury that resulted in a concussion, but she didn't have amnesia. Sherry claims that Daniel's dad, Bill, is just making this up. And unfortunately, we don't know what the truth is. Sherry is saying that she never had amnesia. Nope, never happened. And then you've got Bill over here who's saying that it did. And I'm telling you this because regardless of if it's true or not, regardless of if she had amnesia, I feel like this little story sums up Daniel's parents' relationship 
really, really well because their relationship was a very volatile, a very toxic relationship. And it was a very sling mud kind of relationship, if you know what I mean. One of them would say, oh, they did this. And then the other one would be like, no, I didn't, you did this. It was a very, he said, she said kind of relationship. They were both always just throwing these accusations around about each other and nobody really knew if they were true or not. And even though they were married, there was no real relationship there. They didn't really get on. They just kind of lived as roommates in the house together. But we do know that it was a very, very volatile household. However, like I said, there were quite a few very big significant things that happened in Daniel's childhood. And his mom suffering from amnesia was just the beginning. Because when Daniel was 10 years old, now, when Daniel is 10 years old, his mom has an affair with a woman. And this woman, she's very significant because she is Daniel's kindergarten teacher. So this is obviously doubly traumatizing for Daniel because obviously it's not nice for any children to find out that their parent is having an affair. But the fact that one of his parents is having an affair with one of his teachers, that's just the worst. But it gets worse from there because as a result of this affair, Daniel's parents split up. And Daniel's mom continued on the relationship with his teacher. And Daniel just kind of had to accept the fact that his teacher was now his step-parent. And Daniel actually did refuse to be around his mom and his teacher. He just didn't really want to acknowledge what was going on. And he avoided being around his mom at pretty much all costs. This situation made Daniel very, very angry. He was enraged by this. And when Daniel was around his mom, he was very angry. He was very confrontational. He would swear at her. He would call her names. He would use some homophobic slurs, all of which he learned from his dad because his dad used to use the same kind of language towards his mom as well. So Daniel went from a kind, loving, caring child to a very angry, very confrontational child. So this was a very significant event. But like I said, it gets worse from there because he starts fantasizing about killing people. But not just anyone. He starts to fantasize about killing his teacher, the one that his mom is having an affair with. Well, she's not technically having an affair anymore, but you know what I mean. So at the age of 10, Daniel is having murderous thoughts. He is telling other people about these thoughts as well. He's not keeping it to himself. And he would go around telling people that he wanted to slit the throat and strangle his teacher to death. Remember, he is only 10 years old at this point. And this is not just a one-off event that you could maybe ignore or not take too seriously. Oh no, no. He is repeatedly telling people that he wants to kill his teacher over an extended period of time. And I also want to point out that Daniel was seeing a therapist and he was also telling his therapist about his fantasies. He would also say to his therapist that he fully intended to make these fantasies a reality. Again, I feel like I just need to stress he is 10 years old. And this is just not normal for a child. It really isn't. I think it's very normal for a child, especially when they found out that their parent is having an affair, for example. It's very normal for a child to lash out and say things like, oh, I wish you were dead, or I wish you weren't here anymore, or blah, blah, blah. But it is not normal for a child to think about the ways in which they want to kill someone. And unfortunately, this is just 
the very beginning of these fantasies. In this case, the fantasies would not go away and they would get much, much worse. But before this would happen, another significant event happened in Daniel's life. And this event, Daniel was actually the hero in the story. And it was so significant that Daniel actually made headline news nationwide. So in November of 2009, Daniel is currently 12 years old at this point. Daniel was at his dad's house and they were both just sat at the table. They were working through Daniel's homework when suddenly Bill started to have severe chest pain and he was having a heart attack. He was at the beginning stages of a heart attack. So Daniel and Bill jumped in the car. Clearly Bill at this point is still okay to drive and they start driving, making their way to the hospital. So Bill was driving and he was driving pretty fast, trying to get to the hospital as quick as possible when all of a sudden his heart actually stopped beating and he fully blacked out. But his foot was still on the accelerator and his foot like obviously didn't come off the accelerator. So the car was still going. It was actually getting faster and faster and the car was completely out of control. Now, Daniel is in the passenger seat, only 12 years old. I feel like I need to stress that. He's still so, so young. He is completely terrified at this point. His dad has passed out next to him and the car is completely out of control. They're going at full speed. There is pedestrians everywhere. There's other cars everywhere. Daniel tries to press on the brake, but he can't reach it. And Daniel knew that he had to bring the car to a stop somehow. Otherwise him, his dad, other people are going to get severely hurt. Daniel managed to grab the steering wheel, steer the car off the road. The car jumped a curb, went through a hedge and smashed into a concrete wall. Amazingly, Daniel wasn't injured by this accident, but his dad next to him was still blacked out. And Daniel went into a huge panic. He thought that his dad was dead, but then he remembered the CPR adverts that he saw on telly and it just was very quick thinking of Daniel. So he started beating on his dad's chest like the adverts told him to. And he was just hoping and praying that it would work, that something would happen. And amazingly, it did. Daniel's dad woke up with a gasp. His heart had restarted. Daniel had literally saved his dad's life. And I really don't know how Daniel managed to do all of this. He's 12 years old and he managed to steer the car off the road without harming any pedestrians or other people in vehicles. And he literally saved his dad's life. The outcome could have been so much worse. So many more people could have been harmed, but Daniel literally saved the day. And following this incident, the story broke the news. It was on news nationwide. And Daniel, understandably, became a little bit of a media sensation. Daniel was giving TV interviews, articles were being written about him, and he was even given the Red Cross Heroes Award. And you're probably thinking, oh look, Daniel is a hero now. Like maybe this will put him on a good path. Maybe this will stop his murderous thoughts and fantasies. Well, unfortunately not. If it's it's even possible this incident made Daniel go in the complete different direction. It actually made him worse. And I feel like I do kind of understand why it made him worse, um, which I will try and explain, which probably won't make any sense. But right now, Daniel has saved a life and he's been constantly fantasizing about taking a life. So I feel like that is pretty significant, isn't it? It has to be. It's like he had this power trip that he could bring people back to life, but he also wanted to take their life away. I just feel like that is pretty significant because according to his mom, the incident of Daniel saving his dad's life 
completely traumatized him. His mom said that the more attention that he got, the more he had to relive the trauma. And this made him go further and further down his dark path. And again, I know I'm like a broken record in this case because I keep reminding you of his age, but he is only 12 years old at this point. It's just very easy to forget sometimes how young people are. When we cover cases where the child is the killer, it is so easy to forget that they are a child, how young they are. And now we need to talk about Daniel's school life because unfortunately for Daniel, things weren't much better for him at school. As Daniel entered his teenage years, he did become a little bit of an outcast, a little bit of a loner. He didn't really fit in and he struggled to fit in. 80 to 90% of the cases that we cover, they all have a very similar school experience, but it does just seem to be so common. The school experience can be so detrimental and life-changing for some people. And I feel like I can speak from experience. The things that you experience at school affect you for the rest of your life. So Daniel was seen as a little bit of an outcast. He just struggled to make friends, but he did have friends. He actually had a few friends and he also had a girlfriend. So he wasn't like completely like loner on his own. Now, a lot of people have commented on what Daniel would wear, which I personally don't really feel like is relevant, but I'll say it anyway. He used to wear a lot of dark clothing, a lot of black clothing, a lot of combat boots. And I don't feel like that defines who you are as a person, but some people seem to think so. And Daniel would introduce himself to other people in a very, very strange way. He would go up to people and say, hi, I'm Dan and I like the dark. And Daniel did get teased a lot for this and he got the nickname Dan who likes the dark. And you know how kids can be. If anyone is even slightly different, kids can be mean. Now the book that I was reading for my research also mentioned the kind of music that Daniel listened to. It said that he liked to listen to heavy metal music like Slipknot and that had a dark influence on his mind. Again, this is a load of crap. I hate it so much when people blame music or video games or films or stuff like that. And it's like so many people listen to Slipknot, my husband being one of them. Slipknot is one of his favorite bands. It's like so many people listen to Slipknot and don't want to murder people. Are their lyrics dark? Yes, but that doesn't mean it makes you want to murder people. I think sometimes people just like to find something to blame because people don't want to actually acknowledge that people are evil. Daniel was also known for another one of his hobbies. And this one is definitely a little bit unusual. You don't really hear many people doing this. So Daniel was known for fire spitting, like literally fire breathing, which I suppose is a pretty cool hobby when you actually think about it. Kind of dangerous, but um, yeah, you don't really hear many people doing that, do you? However, unfortunately, oh God, I hate to say this. I know so many of you are going to be like, oh no. Um, he also had a hobby of harming animals and this started pretty young. And it's said that he started out by harming birds that he would just find in his neighborhood. Something else that Daniel actually suffered with as well was bedwetting. So now that I've said that, I'm sure some of you are like, oh my God. Daniel completes the McDonald triad, which is uh, an obsession with fire, starting fire, harming animals and bedwetting. And if you don't know what the McDonald triad is, just very briefly, it's just those three things. And if children exhibit those three things, it's supposed to predict the likelihood of them turning into a serial killer. So like I've already mentioned, Daniel had a pretty hard time in school and he was bullied a little bit, which is not nice. It's not, I don't like to hear anyone being bullied. And the bullying that Daniel went through meant that he started to skip school, his grades started to slip, he started to misuse marijuana and alcohol and he was drinking very 
very heavily. And he also started shoplifting. His drinking habits as well started to become a problem at home because whenever he was drinking, he would have violent outbursts and he would on occasions destroy furniture, punch doors, punch holes in walls, etc. You know, the kind of thing. His mom said that Daniel pretty much did whatever he wanted whenever he wanted to do it. Neither one of his parents knew how to deal with him, knew how to control him, knew how to kind of get him on the right path. And obviously he was living between the two homes because his parents had separated. And at one point, Daniel's behavior was just so bad. Daniel's dad just completely kicked him out of the house, kicked him out of his house. He didn't want to deal with him anymore, which is always a very good solution, isn't it? For a parent out of sight, out of mind. So then Daniel started to live permanently with his mom. And to no surprise, Daniel really struggled with his mental health. He was actually suffering with severe depression, which led to Daniel on a number of occasions self-harming. And he did express quite often that he wanted to take his own life. Daniel has said that he wanted to do anything to feel something. He just couldn't feel. He was that numb with depression and he would do literally anything to have some kind of feeling, which included things like starving himself. And this eventually led to Daniel developing anorexia. And at the age of 14, he was committed to an eating disorder clinic for 25 days. It's also reported that Daniel was having feelings of derealization and out-of-body experiences. He just felt like he wasn't in control and these would happen multiple times a week. And on his release, Daniel was prescribed some antipsychotic and antidepressant drugs, including Lexapro, Prozac, and Zoloft. So all in all, Daniel is really struggling. But what gets me with this case is that people knew. Lots of people knew about Daniel's struggles. Lots of people knew about his struggles with his mental health, but also his murderous thoughts. Like his friends knew, teachers knew, his therapists knew, he was committed to clinics, his parents knew. So many people knew in this situation, which is definitely something that is so frustrating with this case, because I truly feel like this could have been prevented. Like obviously what we're going to get to could have been prevented. So Daniel is not in the best situation right now. He's really struggling with his mental health. He's having these murderous thoughts. He's being bullied at school. His home life is not great. It's a very volatile environment. And now he's on a cocktail of drugs. He's also still abusing alcohol and marijuana. The murderous thoughts that Daniel was having since the age of 10 from this moment started to get worse and worse. So at the age of 10, Daniel was fantasizing about killing his teacher. Now I'm not condoning this. I want to make that very clear, but you can understand why he had those thoughts. I know they're extreme, not condoning them, but his mom was having an affair with the teacher. So you can understand why his anger and hatred was directed towards his teacher. Well, now Daniel was fantasizing about murdering anyone, anyone and everyone. And Daniel was telling his therapist this, like he was not keeping this to himself. He was telling his therapist that every time he would pass someone on the street, he would think about murdering them. And he would think about the ways in which he would do it. Every time he passed people at school in the corridors, he would think about murdering them, how he would do it. So I'm not going to go on, but pretty much anyone Daniel would come across, he would think about murdering them, even his therapist. And Daniel could not be more open about this. He was telling so many people that he wanted to murder people. And he would go into graphic detail. Daniel said that he wanted to peel the skin off people's hands. And he also wanted to slice the eyelids of people so they could watch him torture them. He also told his school counsellor 
he was seeing many people, okay? So he told his school counselor that he also wanted to carry out a school shooting. And he also said to the school counselor, oh, I wonder how many people I can take out before I'm taken out. And Daniel would say that these fantasies that he was telling everyone only scratched the surface of what he actually wanted to do. And like I said, it's so incredibly frustrating because so many people knew about Daniel. So many people knew about his thoughts. And when I was researching this case, I was thinking, why did no one do anything? Like, why was he not committed in some way? Like, why was there no intervention? Well, apparently Daniel was actually really smart about the way he would talk to his therapist and school counselor about all of this because he would never name a specific victim. He would never say his actual plans. And therefore, the therapists, the school counsellors, were powerless to intervene. I don't know if that's true. Is it true? Anybody that has experience in this, was there anything that could be done at this point? Because I just feel like he is talking left, right and centre about how he wants to murder everyone. He's already killing animals. He wants to carry out a school shooting. Like, Surely there's something that could have been done, you know? So Daniel was allowed to just carry on living his life, going about his normal everyday things, having these really disturbing thoughts. But the problem is, is that the thoughts were not the only problem right now because Daniel was also carrying out some absolutely horrific acts as well. Daniel had started to visit a website called Bestcore. Now this website has some very disturbing video content it shows basically murders, torture, sadistic acts, sadistic sex. And the videos that Daniel liked to watch showed men killing and torturing women, drinking their blood and cramming a crucifix down their throat. And it's just like, this is what you blame for influencing people's minds, giving them a dark influence. You don't blame Slipknot, you blame websites like this. And Daniel would watch these videos with his friends, with his girlfriend, and he would get turned on by these videos. And Daniel was having pretty violent sex with his girlfriend as well. And he was very sexually aroused by strangling her. And apparently she consented to this. But not only that, Daniel also liked to research serial killers. But what's new? How many times have I said that now in these videos? But to be honest, if you saw my Google history, some people will probably be very worried about me as well. But yes, Daniel liked to research serial killers. You know the ones. He liked to research Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, um, Richard Ramirez as well. Like it's always the same ones. And apparently Daniel saw these serial killers as saviors to society. Don't really know how he figured that out, but that is what he thought. And unfortunately, Daniel aspired to be like these serial killers. Daniel was also caught with pocket knives at school at times. And then this next thing, I know I've already mentioned a little bit of animal abuse, but I'm, I'm going to say a little bit more now. And I know, I know, I hate it as well. I really do. So if you don't want to hear this, completely understand, skip forward 30 seconds. So we already know that he is harming and killing animals. And up until now, he had only really taken out his anger on birds. Well, now he was turning to cats. Daniel once told his friend that he strangled and killed a cat. And his friend, obviously mortified, asked him like, well, why? Why would you do that? And Daniel just went, oh. I wanted to. I hated that cat. And then he sent a text message to a different friend expressing that he wanted to kill 
his own dog. He didn't, thank God. I hate animal abuse just as much as all of you guys. It's like, why? Like, leave the animals alone. The animals have never done anything to anyone. Now, Daniel is now aged 15. And at this point, he had never been committed for any treatment of his mental health apart from the anorexia. And this is because, like I said, he'd never shown any signs of acting on his thoughts. There were only thoughts at this point. However, Daniel was starting to show more outbursts of anger at school. He would go around punching lockers, threatening other students, saying things like, quote, if anyone gets in my way, I'm going to F them up. And Daniel's behavior in school was finally enough to make the school do something. So Daniel was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. And when he was there, he was still telling people about his thoughts. He was going into so much detail. And obviously he's been committed now for his anger, for his thoughts and everything, but he's still telling everybody that he wants to kill people. He wants to kill everyone that he sees. He's still going into graphic detail, but he was released two weeks later. Why? <laughs> Why? Why? It's like so many people are probably held in these hospitals that don't even need to be there. And then they release someone like Daniel after two weeks who is expressing that they want to murder people make it make sense. It just doesn't, does it? And after Daniel is released, we are now only months away from the tragic events of today's case. But before the absolutely tragic events of today's case, there is another very significant thing that happened in Daniel's life. And that was a court battle, which was a custody battle between his mom and dad to gain custody of Daniel and his sister, Sarah. Now this court battle was very, very ugly. It kind of is very reminiscent of what I was saying earlier on in the video about how they used to just sling murder one another, accuse one another of different things, and we don't actually know if it's true. So Daniel's dad, Bill, was accusing Sherry, their mom, of struggling herself with her mental health, that she was unfit to raise Daniel and Sarah, and especially because Daniel was obviously having issues, she just wasn't able to cope with him. But then Sherry, their mom, was saying that Bill was very controlling, very abusive, very angry, and he was not fit to look after the children. And none of these accusations, I can confirm if they're true or not, that is just what they were saying. Those are just the two different versions of events and Daniel was stuck in the middle. Daniel was even forced to give a statement in court basically saying which parent he wanted to live with. He was basically being forced into choosing between his parents, which Daniel didn't want to do. He loved his parents equally. He wanted to live with both of them. He was fine with shared custody. And in the end, Sherry did win full custody of Daniel and Sarah. And she also won the right to be in charge of Daniel's medical treatment. But what is really significant about this court battle is that it only happened 11 days before the tragic events of today's case. Now, we'll never know if the trauma and everything, the whole experience that Daniel went through in that custody battle led him to do what he's about to do. We don't know, but I do feel like it is pretty significant because he's been having these thoughts for the longest time and so far he hasn't acted on them. So I just feel like the timing is just too coincidental. Like I just feel like it's significant because now we are getting on to the tragic events of today's case. So on April 13th, 2013, Daniel decided that enough was enough. He couldn't control his urges anymore. He decided that tonight was going to be the night that he lives out his violent fantasies. And tragically, Daniel decided that he wanted to kill someone. 
It didn't really matter who, he just wanted to kill someone. Daniel was at his mom's house on this evening and he started to put his preparations in place to carry out his plan. He dressed all in black. He also wore a ski mask, taped the bottom of his shoes so he wouldn't leave any footprints. He wore gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints and DNA. Daniel had been thinking about this moment for the longest time. He'd been planning it in his head for the longest time and he wasn't about to take any chances. And I just feel like it's crazy how organized he is, like how thorough he is. He's 15 and he's thinking about taping the bottom of his shoes. It's scary how organized he is. His plan was to break into someone's home. He didn't actually care who it was. He didn't have a particular victim in mind. So he just went out walking around the neighborhood and he was just going up to houses testing doors, testing windows to see if any of them were open. Daniel actually checked anywhere between 40 and 50 homes that night, looking for an opportunity, looking for an open door, an open window. That actually reminds me of Richard Chase. Do you remember Richard Chase? He would go around checking people's doors and if the door was open, he would go in and kill people. Kind of reminds me of that. I almost wonder, did he research Richard Chase and is that why he did this? So he was looking for a very long time trying to find an open house and unfortunately he did come across a house that had an open window and this house happened to only be two doors down from his dad's house and the residents that lived in this house were Claudia Morpin and Chip Northup. Chip was 87 years old and he served in the US Navy during World War II and then after he went on to have a very successful career as an attorney. And Claudia was 70 26 years old and she worked in her local church. Claudia and Chip had met later on in life. Both of them had been previously married but when they met each other they both felt like they had finally met their soulmate and currently they had been married for nearly 20 years and between the two of them they had 11 children, 14 grandchildren and eight great grandchildren. And both of them were just extremely caring people, so selfless. They adored and loved their family. And on the evening of the 13th of April, 2013, they both went to bed. They said goodnight to each other like they did every single night but they didn't know that that would be the last night they would ever say goodnight to each other. So in the dead of night, Daniel broke into Claudia and Chip's home. He made his way up to their bedroom where they were sleeping and he just stood over them and watched them sleeping for like 10 minutes. Daniel was reportedly very nervous, but excited and exhilarated. And as he was watching over them sleep, Claudia woke up and saw him. And when she saw Daniel, she just started screaming. And this is when Daniel launched his attack. He started stabbing Claudia repeatedly in the torso. Claudia pleaded for her life, even though she was being stabbed in such an aggressive, frenzied way, she was still pleading with Daniel for her life. But it's reported that this just motivated Daniel even more. And his attack just continued and actually got a little bit more frenzied. And obviously all of this commotion woke Chip up. But then Daniel launched his attack on Chip as well. He stabbed both of them until they were completely both unresponsive. And by the end of this very violent attack, Claudia had been stabbed a total number of 67 times and Chip was stabbed a total number of 65 times. That is overkill to the extreme. Daniel has so much rage in him, but unfortunately it doesn't end there. Of course it doesn't, does it? Daniel has to be one of the youngest, 
most sadistic people I think we've covered. Just, just wait until you hear what he does. He decided that he wanted to open up his victims. He wanted to explore their body. And I've got to warn you, this next part is very, very graphic. Daniel started cutting both Claudia and Chip in the abdomen and started to disembowel them. He then pulled out fat from the leg area and torso. He then, and this bit just, oh, oh this just makes me go all funny. He then tried to take out Claudia's eye because he wanted to see what was behind the eye. He wanted to just examine what it would look like, but it was too difficult. He actually couldn't do it. He then started to cut open Chip's forehead, just slice it open just to see what was behind the forehead. And then this last thing, I just can't understand why he did this. I just really can't. And I don't think anyone can really understand why he did this. He had obviously opened up Claudia and Chip and he placed a cell phone in Claudia's abdomen and a drinking glass in Chip's. Daniel claims to have done this to quote, F with the minds of the people investigating this case. Now, I personally don't believe him here. Like, I don't feel like he's trying to mess with the police officers. Like, I just don't buy that. I don't know why he said that. I just personally think that this individual is a very sick, twisted individual. And then after he did all this, he just fled the scene. Now, the next day, the police were obviously called out to the house. And you can just imagine the scene and why it would it look like. It looked like a bloodbath. And the officers investigating and that were on the scene said that it was the most sadistic murder they had ever come across. However, the police couldn't find any evidence as to who did this. There was no DNA. There was no fingerprints. There was no footprints, no weapons were left behind, there was no DNA or anything like that. The police didn't have a clue who had done this. But because of how violent and vicious the attack was, the police came to the conclusion that it was someone carrying out a personal vendetta against the couple. So therefore, the murderer must know the couple. Now, in pretty much every single murder, the police officers will always look at the family and friends, the people closest to the victim, as initial suspects. And this is exactly what they did. They brought in Chip's son, Robert, and his two grandsons, Oliver and Tony, in for questioning. And the interrogation of the three of them lasted for over 12 hours. Now the police were convinced that one of those three carried out the murder. The police started digging into all three of them. The police found out that Oliver had schizophrenia, which they tried to use against him, which don't even get me started on that. It's like schizophrenia does not equal murderer. They also found out that Robert had had his carpets cleaned the day of the murders, which granted looks very suspicious. And the police were like, right, that's it. You murdered them. And then you got your carpets cleaned. And then they found a drawing of Tony's that granted is pretty disturbing. It shows someone holding a knife standing over a bed with children lying in the bed. And Tony, out of all three of them, did face the most scrutiny. The police were really convinced that he did it. But all three of them were completely innocent. Obviously, Robert having his carpets cleaned and Tony having that picture is very, very unfortunate, but it was just a coincidence. All three of them had to go through the police interrogation, police scrutiny, public scrutiny. They lost thousands of dollars hiring attorneys and also repairing the damage that the police had done to all of their homes, especially Robert's, because they literally 
pulled up all of his carpets and the plumbing. And it was a complete nightmare for the family. And on top of all of that, they're mourning the loss of Claudia and Chip. Meanwhile, Daniel is out just living his life and the police don't even know who Daniel Marsh is at this point. And what is just really sickening is that after the murders, Daniel was actually thriving. He was living his best life. He was attending school. His grades had gone up. He wasn't as violent anymore. He was even named student of the month. It really is like he had this pent up aggression and he let it all out and now he's thriving. Now he can function, which is honestly just absolutely terrifying to think about when it comes to people like Daniel because they're living in bliss right now, but that is only temporary. Soon he's going to become frustrated again. He's going to become violent again and then he's going to lash out again. And Daniel was really cocky about these murders. He was actually going around telling people that he committed them. He told his friends, he told his girlfriend. He was openly bragging. He felt proud of what he'd done. Now his friends and his girlfriend were absolutely terrified of him at this point. But even more chillingly, Daniel told his friends and his girlfriend that he fully intended to murder again. Now I know you're probably thinking, well, why didn't they tell anyone? Why didn't they go to the authorities, the police? anybody. And I know they should have done. They should have done. But they were absolutely terrified that Daniel was going to murder them. And you've also got to realize that they're also children. They're also 15. But what is so just scary is that Daniel is literally a serial killer in the waiting. And Daniel went on living his life out and about doing whatever he wanted for two months after the murder. And one of his friends realized that they couldn't let him kill again. Enough was enough. So they went and reported him. And this is when we get to the absolute shocking interview interrogation of Daniel Marsh. This definitely has got to be up there with one of the most chilling interviews I think I've ever, ever seen. By the time Daniel is brought in for questioning, he has turned 16. And when the police first started the interview of Daniel, they were just in complete disbelief. They were thinking, how the hell did this 15-year-old carry out such sadistic murders? Now, initially, Daniel denied all involvement. For three hours, Daniel pleaded his innocence. What do you know, Dan? I just know that somebody broke into this old couple's house and stabbed them, killed them. Why the heck would you just sit here and ball face lie to Ariel and me? I am... You guys are threatening me with... <laughs> with what? The truth? Getting arrested for two murders. I am so scared right now. Of course, I'm going to do anything I can to try and say that I didn't do this. And the police were struggling to get anything out of him. So the police started asking Daniel about his fantasies and all about those. And they were really hoping that this would open Daniel up, that he would slip up or he would voluntarily tell them about the murders. Did you ever look up on a computer and do research on psychopaths? Yeah. Why did you do that? I looked up sociopath and psychopath because I always found it fascinating. And the more I've aged, the more I can relate. I don't feel sympathy for other people. I don't feel empathy for them. And whether I like that or not, it's the way it is. It's just like, I want to hurt people. I want to kill people, but I don't want to want that. I wish it wasn't that way. Every time I look at someone, in my mind, I see flashes of images of me killing them. And he said that with the straightest face, with a monotone, cold voice. And if that doesn't send shivers down your spine, I don't know what will. And after Daniel said that, the police were thinking, okay, we're getting somewhere here. He is starting to open up. When the police first asked Daniel about Chip and Claudia, 
Daniel said, I'm really effed up either way, aren't I? And then he went into a full confession. He went into graphic detail about the murder. He did not leave out anything. When was the first time you started thinking about killing these people down the street? Yeah, I really am either way, aren't I? I didn't. Did you start thinking about it? That night, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to do it. I lost control. And I just kind of stood over their bed watching them sleep for a few minutes. My body was trembling. I was nervous, but excited and exhilarated. I was actually going to do it. <laughs> I was there. It's finally happening. Cut open both of their torsos around here. And in the woman, I put a phone inside of her and I put a cup inside the guy. It was pure happiness and adrenaline and dopamine just all of it rushing over me. But if that wasn't shocking enough, Daniel said one more thing. Daniel basically described in the interview how he would kill the detective. Um, mentioned that pretty much everybody you meet you have thoughts about killing them and how you would kill them. Yeah. So how would you kill me? There's a lot of ways. Um, choking you to death with your tie. Okay. Uh, beating your face into the mirror until it broke and using the glass to cut your arteries, uh, gouging your eyes out and just smashing your face into the wall. Okay. Nothing personal. By the end of the interview, Daniel was charged with two counts of first-degree murder with special enhancements for inflicting torture and demonstrating exceptional depravity in the killings. At trial, Daniel pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but Daniel was evaluated by a psychiatrist and he was deemed completely sane. And I 100% agree. He is way too put together, thought out, cunning, sadistic to be insane. He knew exactly what he was doing and he knew that it was wrong. He's clearly suffering in some way, but he is sane. And he was also, I read that he was diagnosed as a psychopath. He can't be diagnosed as a psychopath, but he's a psychopath basically. And he got the score 35.8 out of 40 on the psychopath checklist, which is very, 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 very high. And then to top it off, Daniel actually threatened to kill the psychiatrist that diagnosed him. Prosecution portrayed Daniel for exactly what he was, which is a cold-blooded murderer, who is basically a serial killer in the waiting. I mean, there is no denying it at this point. He would have become a serial killer. And in the end, the jury agreed and Daniel was found guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 52 years before eligible for parole. Now, Daniel has made quite a few appeals saying that he's a changed man. When he committed the murders, he was very young, he was naive. There was also a law that was passed in California, which meant that Daniel may have had his sentence reduced because he was only 15 at the time of the murders. But not only that, I actually cannot believe I am going to say this, but Daniel Marsh was given the opportunity to give a TED talk. Yes, an actual TED talk, which he did. He did a TED talk. He did this TED talk whilst he was in prison and it was titled Embracing Our Humanity. Now, I haven't been too sassy in this, but I'm sorry, it's going to come out now. Embracing Our Humanity. Seriously, from a murderer. 
Really a cold-blooded murderer at that. Daniel stood on stage and talked about how troubled his childhood was and that this drove him to murder. He was also now making allegations of child abuse and he said that he is now completely reformed and should be given a second chance. And then he received a standing ovation. Embrace our humanity. And obviously, can you imagine, this was extremely distressing for Chip and Claudia's family. I mean, they're watching their murderer give a TED talk and then people standing up to applaud him. It's like, really? Thankfully, the family actually managed to get the TED talk removed. It was actually removed from YouTube after only two days of being up, which is extremely rare. YouTube don't do that lightly. I just can't believe he was able to give a TED talk. It's just completely unbelievable. And as far as the child abuse allegations, I don't know if they're true. Obviously, his mom did accuse his dad. But again, we don't know if that's true. And granted, he had a troubling childhood. No one is denying that. But that is not an excuse for what he did. And then finally, in 2018, so not that long ago, it was ruled that Daniel would not have his sentence reduced. And he would remain in prison for his sentence, his original sentence, which was life in prison with a minimum of 52 years. And finally... Chip and Claudia's family could breathe a sigh of relief. And honestly, I think that ruling was for the best. I mean, I've said it a couple of times already, but Daniel Marsh is without a doubt a serial killer in waiting. I think Daniel may have the best intentions. He says that he doesn't want to feel these things and he's a changed person, blah, blah, blah. That may all be true, but he's a psychopath. He cannot be cured. And I try not to judge children that have committed murder as harshly as I do adults because their brain hasn't developed. But Daniel Marsh is one of those cases where the murders were just too sadistic. They were they were just too brutal. They were just too violent. And I think he is just an individual that will always be a potential danger to others. Even if he doesn't want to be, he just can't help it. And the main thing to take away from this case is how absolutely tragic this case was. It's so incredibly sad. Chip and Claudia were completely innocent in all of this. They were such loving, caring people. They did not deserve this. Their family did not deserve this. Chip loved his family. He loved his church. He loved his community. He had worked hard all of his life. He had served in the Navy and he had now retired with his soulmate who he had finally found later on in life. And he was loving life. He was living life to the full. And Claudia was known for her kind, loving spirit. She just had an ability to make everyone feel listened to, everyone feel valued. And everyone who has ever met Claudia has said that she is one of the most compassionate, loving, caring people that they have ever met. And finally, there is actually one more tragedy to this story. And that is of Chip's grandson, Tony, who was the one that was falsely accused because of the drawing that he had made. Now, even though he was completely innocent in all of this and his name was cleared and Daniel was arrested, he still could not shake that people judged him. People still thought that he was guilty. And tragically, three years after the murder of his grandparents, Tony would take his own life, making him the third victim of this story. And that is just such a tragic ending. Like, there's just no one that wins in this. And Daniel has ruined so many lives. And I just hope that Chip and Claudia's family are okay. I hope that Robert and Oliver, who were the other two that were falsely accused, I hope they're doing okay. 
And that brings us to the end of the episode on Daniel Marsh. There are no updates on this case. So thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.